In the mid-60s, at St Joseph's Catholic Primary School, a Josephite nun, Kathleen Carroll, then Sister Frances, was out on the oval in her white habit, coaching a team of rugby league footballers from the primary school where she taught. Beside her is one of Brisbane Rugby League's most esteemed coaches. The St Joseph's school team was the founding team of the North St Joseph's Junior Rugby League Club. North St Joseph's still runs today as a Junior Rugby League Club in Brisbane. Sister Frances maintained her role as the coach of St Joseph's until she moved to St Paul's in Woodridge. When at St Paul's, she met with the Brothers Rugby League Club to form a Brothers Club on the south side of Brisbane. As a result, Logan Brothers was born. Kathleen Carroll, or Sister Frances as she was known in 1966, was a pioneer of the game, but she didn't do it all on her own. A former Brothers halfback from the 1940s gave her a hand. Kathleen approached Bob Bax with the proposal for the new school team. Bax helped her out by starting the coaching with her and teaching her the ropes so she could take on the role herself. Bob Bax himself was a Brothers halfback in the late 40s and early 50s, but it was as a coach that he rose to prominence. He started coaching at Brothers in 56 and won the Premiership. In 57, his Brothers team made the Grand Final. In 58, another Premiership. and 59, another Grand Final. But the powers that be at Brothers weren't happy with him after four years, four Grand Finals and two Premierships, and he was removed from Brothers' role. Clive Churchill's North side has just beaten his Brothers' team in 1959 Premiership, and as Clive moved on, Norths were looking for someone to take on the role. So Bax continued his coaching career at Norths, winning a Premiership in 1960, 61, 62, 63, 64, and after a Henry Holloway interrupted with Redcliffe in 1965, again in 1966. They played in a losing grand final in 67, lost the minor semi-final in 68, won the Premiership again in 69, and then Holloway again interfered with Valleys when Bucks lost an extra time grand final in 1970 and retired. He then came out of retirement to take a team everyone thought would be a wooden spooner in 1977 and he took them to the semi-finals, finishing equal third at the end of the season. In 1978, that north side were unable to perform above expectations for another whole season, and they finished last, and Bob Bax retired for good this time. In a Brisbane Rugby League coaching career, Bob Bax coached A-grade teams for 17 years, 13 of those at Norths, and in those 17 years, his final year was the only year he didn't make the semi-finals, and of the other 16 years, he played in 13 grand finals and won nine premierships. He coached Queensland in 71 and 72 and was named as the coach of North's 75th anniversary greatest ever team. He was an innovator, a master tactician and a leader of men. And the year he came out of retirement to take a team of no one gave any hope of winning anything to the semi-finals. That was 1977. Hey everybody, welcome to BRL Moments in Time. I'm Chris Leeson together here with Dave Teekle and today we're going to discuss the 1977 BRL season. This is episode number 19. Dave, how are you going? Yeah, very well. Thank you, Chris. It's been a been an epic journey so far. It has been. We're almost ready to bring our decade to a close. After today's episode, we'll have one more to discuss the players of 1977 and then one final episode for the season to induct 10 players into our BRL Moments in Time Hall of Fame. But as always, if we're getting started on 77... Can you give us an idea of what was going on in 1977? Hey everyone, it's Chris here, just breaking in. Before Dave does give us a rundown of what was going on in 1977, we just want to apologise for a little bit of uh, audio trouble that we have a little bit later on in the podcast. I've done my best to tidy it up, but it's pretty um, scratchy and uh, some parts go soft and some parts go loud. But once we get through that little bit in the middle of the podcast, it does clean up for the rest of it. So... Bear with it for that little bit of time, and you should be okay afterwards. Anyway, we'll get back to Dave, and he'll tell us what was going on in 1977. From the beginning of this season of the podcast, costs have risen. A postage stamp has gone from $0.05 cents to $0.20. Cents. A loaf of bread more than doubled from $0.20 cents to $0.46. Cents. A litre of milk from $0.10 cents to $0.28. Cents. 
the average Brisbane house price from around $14,000 to just on $30,000. And to keep pace with everything doubling in cost, the average annual salary has risen from about $3,500 to about $10,000. Malcolm Fraser was Prime Minister in 77. Joe Bickley-Peterson was still the Premier of Queensland. On January the 18th, the Granville Railway disaster occurred. 418 refugees from the Vietnam War landed in Melbourne in February. That was the largest airlift of war victims. In March, ABBA were touring Australia and there was civil unrest in Indonesia with former Australian consul to Timor testifying to the US Congress on Indonesian atrocities. Premiers of Australian states agreed to a three-month price and wage freeze in April. Australians voted on the question regarding which of four different songs Australians would prefer as their national anthem. Advance Australia Fair was the preferred song from pretty from four pretty uninspiring options. They were pretty uninspiring, <laughs> I remember that time. Yes, no, it was probably a bit before my time, Chris, but um, I'd like to hear the other three just for posterity's sake. Well, one of them was Waltzing Matilda, so that's oh, not really a national anthem. No, it's a national song, I believe. <laughs> yes. Anti-drugs campaigner Donald Mackay disappeared in July. And in the sporting world, in March, Australia won the centenary cricket test with England by the exact same score as the game played in 1877. They won by 45 runs. There was plenty happening on Australian television, with number 96, The Box and Bellbird all being cancelled. The Restless Years and Cop Shop began their screen presence, and in April, Countdown celebrated their 100th episode. And in footy, both the VFL and New South Wales Rugby League Grand Finals ended in a draw. North Melbourne beat Collingwood in the replay and St George defeated Parramatta in the Rugby League replay. Well, good rundown on events there, Dave. Um, seemed that the world was starting to heat up a little in 1977. Yeah. There's a fair bit happening. Uh, certainly a bit different from 1968 when we first started this decade. Uh, the wages and um, and the costs were certainly spiralling, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, inflation. Mm. Uh, the BRL was also starting to heat up a bit. Norths had been awarded the wooden spoon for coming last in 76. And as we mentioned in the introduction, they brought out the big guns when they appointed Bob Bax as coach of the 1977 season. They had a few new signings and a few guys returning to the club and some country players adding to the depth. With Bax having never missed out on the semi-finals, Norths fans were excited. West's fans were excited too, and their club president, Gordon Trichel, was confident his Chargers could win their third premiership in a row. He believed that Ron Raper's coaching presence was a huge plus for the Panthers, and while they'd lost Greg Oliphant and John Rebo, there were plenty of good young players in the Panthers' system, and Norm Carr had already replaced John Rebo as the preferred lock in the top side anyway. Before we move on from West, we've done a quick rundown on every team from newspaper reports at the beginning of the season. And when we did that, West report said that Jeff Richardson's continuing presence at Bertell Park was in the balance. In the end, he decided not to give it another go in 1977. And Ron Raper had to navigate the BRL without Richardson or Oliphant to lead his charges around the field. So moving on to the diehards, Valleys had also been doing some moving on. Marty Scanlon was no longer their coach as John Rhodes had come over from Winter Manly as a non-player coach. Rhodes brought with him Ron Milne and Bob Clapham from Wynnum as well to help strengthen the diehard's depth. Valleys also snared the services of West Speedy Lock John Rebo and a few newcomers like Charlie Frith and Tom Duggan to compensate for the losses of Paul Gaylor, Hugh O'Doherty, Greg Jones, who all went to Gatton, and John McCabe, who went to Innisfail. Doug Muir retired from rugby league to be a professional sprinter, and Ron Gurnett and Dave Robertson both left to place a Metropolitan League for SGIO. In Gurnett's case, as we found out in our Episode 8 interview, it was more about coaching than it was about playing. Some question the sense of having a player coach at Easts, and club president Ted Verenkamp, who used to be a first-grade coach at the Tigers, replied by saying that Des got his team into the grand final, and that was more than six non-playing BRL A-grade coaches did in 1976. You can only judge a coach on results. Des Morris got results, and I think he'll get them again in 1977. And at Winter Manly, they'd lost Rhodes, Milne and Clapham, all state three-quarters to Valleys, and had gained a few prodigal sons returning. Les Salter was back from Norths, Neil Crozaz back from Easts, Russell Hughes had been granted a release from Penrith in Sydney, and Winter Manly had secured the services of former international halfback Dennis Ward as their new coach. Ward came to Winham as a non-playing coach, but when he did take the field, his team played immeasurably better 
which probably says more about Ward as a top organising halfback than it does about him as a coach. And while mentioning international halfbacks who were coaches, Barry Muir had resigned at Redcliffe and Bunny Pearce had taken over as captain coach. Pearce was no newcomer to coaching as he coached at Blackbutt in the South Burnett before moving to Redcliffe. Dave, I'm going to interrupt. I can tell you that when we first started this podcast project, I never thought we'd make anywhere near as many references to the South Burnett competition as we have. Yeah, yep. Having played in the South Burnett for a couple of years in the early 80s, I didn't realise what a place it held in the pantheon of BRL history yeah. through the 70s. Yep. So a little on the South Burnett region of those days, if I may. It was an area around Kingaroy and Nanango and uh, formed part of the Wide Bay region. Uh, teams were based around uh, Blackbutt, Yarraman, Axman, Kingaroy Red Ants and the Nanango Stags, the Wandai Wolves, Mergen Mustangs and the Sherberg Hornets. I've great memories of playing in that competition. Mm. Uh, it was um, it was really good. And as we said earlier, that uh, Ken Churchill also played in that competition, winning a, a grand final with um, with Wandai. Yeah. So back to Redcliffe. Their 1976 side was mostly intact. And Chris, they had added a returning Ian Tiny and new transfers, Greg Oliphant from Wests and Alan Noonan from Souths to their squad, so were feeling very confident that Bunny could help them get the job done in 1977. South Secretary Jack Muir said that Magpies would be focusing on their depth in 1977. They've had more players come into the club than leave, and they had some good youngsters coming through the grades. Another Wandai product, Chris Keeley, came down to play at Souths. <laughs> Another South Burnett reference. Actually, I um, taught Chris's younger brother, I think, or maybe it was his nephew when I was teaching up in Mergen at the time when I was, uh, when I was playing out in Wandai. Right. And uh, Mitch Brennan was back at Souths after his quick sojourn to Canada, and Graham Atherton was back at the Magpies from Nurang. Greg Vivas was also still at the Magpies, but despite being the Queensland captain, he stood down as captain of Souths so Wayne Bennett could take up the captain-coach role. Wayne Bennett at Souths meant that he wasn't at Brothers. John Lehman was still coach at Brothers, and despite the loss of Graham Quinn to St George in Sydney, Alan Power, Chris Ryan, Ian Douth, John Herlihy, Murray Schultz, Noel Russell and Mark Thomas were still at the club and could cover the backline positions with some class. Brothers forward pack was a bit light in 1976, and in 77 there were a few country imports, but losing Ross Franklin, Peter McNamara and Chips Harrington to Bundaberg and Maryborough put a hole that was pretty hard to fill in that Brothers forward pack. So with everyone ready to go, the Woolies pre-season competition started this time with $10,000 at stake. Valleys ran up a big score over Brothers, and East did the same over Norths. But Redcliffe had to storm home in a mud bath to beat Souths 13-7, and Weston Winnemanley played out a controversial 11-9 decision to the boys from Baden. Oh, controversy in rugby league. Surely not, Dave. <laughs> well, <laughs> you be the judge, Chris. With a score at 8-7 to Wests, Winnemanley hooker John Dowling kicked a penalty goal for the Seagulls to go ahead by 9 points to 8. The scoreboard clock then showed that time had expired, but the ground announcer told the scoreboard that they should adjust their clock because there were still two minutes of injury time to be played. He announced again when there was only one minute remaining. When that second minute expired, Winner Manley were tackled with the ball and led at the conclusion of the game for the second time, but play went on because the siren wasn't heard by the referee. Wests gained possession and scored a try for an 11 points to 9 victory. <laughs> I read that match also when we were doing this research and to add a little more spice to the story, Jack Reardon noted in his match review that the official BRL conditions for the Woolies competition rule number four states, each half will be 40 minutes with no time off for injuries. So Winner Manly officials were making noises about protests, but that was a matter for club, of, uh, club executive, not for individual team officials. But Reardon noted that whatever happened, there should be an official inquiry into the events of that game. While the Woolies pre-season progressed, Valley started to find some form. They played a particularly physical match against last year's grand finalists East at Langlands Park in late February. The diehards were finding a semblance of form as they ran in seven tries to three on this day and won by 27 to 11. But on this particular day, the scoreline was secondary to the events of the game. Des Morris, John Lang, Steve Farquhar, Bob Clapham, Ross Strudwick and Bruce McLeod were all sent to the sin bin during the game, four of them after a brawl just before half-time. Referee Eddie Ward then sent East's captain Des Morris off early in the second half for punching an opponent. Well, you would have been happy to see Valley starting to find some form again then, Chris? Yes, Dave, but I was actually at Langlands Park for that game, uh -huh. and it wasn't Valley's form that I remember. 
I remember the day and parts of that game so clearly. Uh, there are a few details I didn't know, but the newspapers of the day helped me confirm those details. I made a mention of this story when I was interviewed about BRL Moments in Time by Michael Adams of the Rugby League Digest. I actually feel bad that we haven't given the Rugby League Digest a really good plug as yet, but I'm going to do it now. So Michael Adams and Andrew Paskin host a great rugby league podcast. It is without doubt the best one I've heard, where they try to bring the history of the game to life. For the past year or so, they've been doing a deep dive into the Super League war and the mid-90s. It's been fantastic. And without a doubt, one of the best I've heard. Um, so if you haven't checked it out, please go and do so. The Rugby League Digest. Anyway, back to my story. I'm a huge fan of their show and I'd been in touch with them a few times. And when Michael Adams found out about this project that we were undertaking, uh, he interviewed me on the Rugby League Digest to find out what it was all about and what we were going to be doing. So he asked me if there were any interesting stories I wanted to tell and I told him about this story that I'm about to tell you guys uh, in that interview. I told him I really wanted to tell the story because I could remember parts of it so well, but I was yet to find any newspaper corroboration for my story. Uh, so just before that interview, I actually found the corroboration when I was doing some research for this season of the podcast. Mm. I needed that corroboration to be found in the paper so that I could properly tell the story and be confident about my memories. Mm. Uh, it was really exciting, and so now I'm going to be able to tell it. In the interview with Michael, I uh, said that it was coming up and it was a good story. So hopefully it is. I would have been about 15 at the time, and I was sitting on the grass uh, at Langlands Park behind the dead ball line in the southwestern corner of the field. The game was going along just fine and it was a great place to watch the game because you could get up really close and personal with the players and I loved watching the play unfold from behind the try line. It gave you a chance to see how breaks were created. Uh, towards half time there was a bit of a blue and punches were thrown and players milling around and Valley's new winger, 20-year-old Mark Conway, who had come up to Valley's from Newcastle, was left lying on the ground with his head bleeding badly. Four of those players that we mentioned earlier were then sent to the sin bin. Conway was taken from the ground for treatment and the halftime hooter went. Now, I'm going to go off tangent here for a minute, but we're still within the parameters of the story. I was talking to Wally Lewis and Peter McWhirter uh, a little while ago, a couple of weeks ago, uh, and asked them about suburban grounds and particularly about Langlands Park because I knew I was going to be recording this story. And Wally said that the dressing rooms at Langlands Park had a really thin sheet of ply between them and you could actually hear the dressing room conversations quite clearly on the other side of the wall without struggling too much. So Valleys would often go outside and meet in the shade somewhere. But that would have been with Ross Strudwick as coach. For now, it was John Rhodes who was in charge and I'm unsure whether they were inside or outside the dressing rooms. But what I do know is that while things were settling down at half-times after that brawl, uh, players and officials from both sides were out on the ground looking at the ground where Conway had been lying. Some people in the crowd said that they were looking for contact lenses and then the whispers went around that they were actually looking for his ear. Oh, hang on. For his ear? Yes, they were looking for his ear. So the linesman was there, Valley's players, Al McGuinness, Alan Mills, John Rebo, Mark Svensson, John Abbott from East was there. Uh, he'd previously played at the Valley's club. And some supporters and officials and trainers were all searching the long grass at Langlands Park to find a missing part of Mark Conway's ear. If you get a chance to go back to the uh, February, is it, or March um, editions of the Courier-Mail and you can actually see the photos, the grass is fairly long at uh, Langlands Park on that day. Uh, anyway, they were looking for his uh, missing part of his ear and then all of a sudden they were gone. So my recollection of it was that the searching happened at half time, and I think that would be right, even though it wasn't stated specifically in the news reports. Because I recall that people were out looking, and then all of a sudden, everybody was gone. John Rebo had found it. The upper part of Mark Conway's ear had been sliced off, and Valley's doctor, Tom Dooley, had to do an emergency operation in the dressing sheds to reattach the ear. My brother and I were wide-eyed watching this unfold. Holy cow, he lost an ear. But was it cut off somehow? Was it bitten off? The whole world took on a completely new aura for me at that time. Yeah, my innocence was lost. I was certainly um, started to see things a bit more clearly. I could all of a sudden see players with dirt and blood on their jerseys, uh, whereas previously I used to just see the, the royal blue of valleys and the gold with the, the black um, double chevron of, of Easts. 
But now I can see that those jerseys were all sweat-stained and bloody and dirty and had grass stains. And I could see that there was actually a game going on. It was a real gladiatorial contest. So it was kind of um, interesting. I'd always just seen the game as, as colours versus colours and now I was seeing it as that gladiatorial um, event. Mm. Uh, anyway, there I was sitting behind the dead ball line watching players up close. I could see the grass stains, the dirt, the sweat marks and the blood from battle and now I saw legs and arms covered in mud, covered in blood, covered in Vaseline with grass stuck to it. The game was so guttural and physical and after this day it took on a completely new meaning for me. Yeah. I think I grew to love it even more and more. Mm. So Mark Conway didn't re return to the field that day and I don't really think he played a whole lot of first grade that year either but Valleys did beat East and I was pretty happy about that. Yes, wow. So the, the rose-coloured glasses were removed but you actually found a deep appreciation after noticing the finer points. Oh, mate, yeah. It was, it was just that I think when you first sort of look at it, it's kind of like today. You just get this beautiful green grass and, yep. and the beautiful clean jerseys because there's no more mud and dirt that there was in the 70s. No, that's, right. uh, that's how I used to see it. And But boy, oh boy, after that day, I could you could see the game properly the yeah. way that was meant to be seen. You could yeah. hear the collisions. It's, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. Yep, it was certainly a seminal moment for me, that's for sure. Yeah, but back to the task at hand, the 1977 Woolies pre-season competition. Yes, okay. Well, the 1977 Woolies competition continued with Norths, Redcliffe, Valleys and Easts making the semi-finals. And after a couple of semi-final matches where Norths completely surprised Redcliffe with a 22-6 win and Valleys scored a tight win over Easts 16-15, Valleys and Norths played in the final with Norths winning 28-23, taking out the Woolies pre-season trophy. Norths were widely tipped to win the Wooden Spoon in 1977, so Bob Bax's influence had certainly done something to have them primed early in the season, that was for sure. Oh, Bob Bax, he was an absolute master, wasn't he? His, uh, his record was absolutely outstanding. Anyway, um, late March rolled around and the BRL fixtures were underway. arrival in Australia has been accompanied by a blaze of publicity. According to the promoters, they're bigger than the Beatles, and with an entourage of 105 people, they're almost twice as big as the Rolling Stones concert. While they're here, they'll perform at 11 concerts in 10 days to an estimated 140,000 people. ABBA are obviously very big business. ABBA were big business, and in March of 77, they were in Australia doing a tour. But I'm pretty sure everyone listening is more interested in the fact that Winner Manly and Norths opened the season at Lang Park. The Seagulls grabbed two premiership points with a 23-18 win. It was a seesawing game with Norths ahead 18-13 until Winham's final attacking bursts when they put on two tries in the last nine minutes to win the game. Valleys won a scrappy affair against Souths when John Rebo kicked eight from 11. And of the three goals that he missed, two of them hit the crossbar and one of them hit an upright. So his goal kicking was at least a cause for optimism. But this goal kicking optimism for Valleys will be revisited as we close out the 77 season. Peter Lee starred in Redcliffe's demolition of Wests by 26 to nil when he scored four tries with devastating elusiveness, strength and speed. And brothers beat East at Langlands Park after John Payne was sent off after about 20 minutes. Both teams scored four tries, and Ian Douth's goal-kicking was the difference. And Brothers went straight into the Amco Cup game against Winner Manly, where their three-quarter line had a field day in attack due to the excellent service provided to them by Chris Ryan. Mark Thomas and Paul Beecham, along with Ian Douth and Noel Russell outside them, ran right throughout the game. But in the second quarter particularly, when Brothers grabbed the upper hand, scoring 13 points and holding on to win 16-15 as Winham came back strongly. And a little bit more pop culture as Countdown aired on the ABC for the 100th time the early April of After week two matches, there was speculation about a number of recently retired coaches who might make a comeback. In 76, Des Morris was the only player coach in the BRL, and there was much consternation about whether it was a thing of the past. 
But in 77, Ian Pearce at Redcliffe, Wayne Bennett at Souths and Morris at Easts were all player coaches. And Jack Reardon noted that those rumblings concerning John Rhodes taking the field to help out the diehards or Ron Raper, who had already threatened it at Pertell Park, Dennis Ward at Winner Manly was a chance as well. And if they all got onto the field, there would have been six player coaches out of the eight clubs. But West got up after week two, so Raper may be off the hook for the moment although pressure will mount to have these top recently retired players take the field if those losses are repeated. In fact, after a bad loss to Wynnum in Week 3, Raper did take the field again for Wests in Week 4 matchup with Easts. In the Amco Cup, Redcliffe repeated their Week 1 defeat of Wests, and when Week 3 had been completed, brothers sat atop the table on their own with 6 points. Redcliffe, Wynnum and Valleys made up the top 4 with 4 points, and Wests, Norths and Souths just behind after one win, and East still, op- still to open their 1977 account. It seemed that the loss of the grand final in 76 had taken a toll on the Tigers that no one had predicted. And then, with Redcliffe in form, they overcame brothers in their Week 4 matchup to join them and snare a piece of the lead in the competition. Valleys were also sharing in that lead after they held on to beat a fast-finishing winner Manly side by 13 points to 12. Easts won their first game of the season by 10 points to 6 against the reigning Premier's Wests. It seemed that Ron Raper's comeback to the playing field didn't have the intended consequence there. Mitch Brennan scored three tries in South's demolition of Norths to put South's into equal fourth spot. And although there was a three-way tie for first and Ron Raper making a comeback to the playing field, at this time the big news wasn't about the BRL. It was centred on the issues with the World Cup. It seemed that England, or Great Britain as they'd be known for this particular tour, had made a couple of selections that would have wide-reaching ramifications in Australia and New Zealand. Jim Mills, a hard-working, no-nonsense prop forward, had been banned from ever playing in New Zealand after stomping on the Kiwis' John Greengrass in a test for Wales. Greengrass was badly injured in the incident and needed 15 facial stitches. Mills was suspended for six months and he has a lifetime ban in New Zealand. If he plays for Great Britain, New Zealand Rugby League will not make their venues available to them. And Chris, as well as Mills banned from New Zealand, England's second rower Phil Lowe was selected to play for Great Britain despite the fact that he was still contracted to Manly Warringah. He had walked out on the last two years of his contract and the English Rugby League agreed that he should have returned to Australia to serve out the remainder of his contract. For their part, Manly have said that they didn't want him back so the English League feel that they're within their rights to select him. Senator Ron McAuliffe has asked the ARL to secure a written confirmation on what Manly require from Phil Lowe so that if they don't want him, he can be released and the International Rugby League Board can serve Lowe, Hull, Kingston Rovers, where Lowe was playing, and the English Rugby League with the appropriate fines. In the end, Lowe withdrew from the touring party to save any further embarrassment or problems for his team. That solved the problems for their Australian leg of the tour, but Jim Mills was still in the squad and they were still scheduled to play games in New Zealand. So we'll see how that one resolves itself. And while the Australian, New Zealand and English rugby leagues were trying to sort out their differences, the Australian tax office were looking at the loophole that Australia's highly paid footballers may have been using to not pay their fair share of tax on their football earnings. Dennis Monty had signed two significant contracts with two Sydney clubs during his career and asked both clubs to provide his sign-on bonus to him at the end of his career as a kind of superannuation. There were big sums involved, and now the tax office needs to make a ruling on how much those earnings need to be taxed. Monty's retired to a beautiful home in Harvey Bay, and his was the first case in a crackdown by the Australian tax office. At this midway point of the first round, the Brisbane or City side was selected to play Tees Toyota Country, and the Tees Toyota Country team had a new coach, so the players selected for City had a task ahead of them. The new coach said of his charges, They smell okay to me. I look for certain qualities in players new to me, and the ones I want seem to be in these boys. Sydney's Eastern Suburbs team had lent out their dual premiership winning coach and conditioner to Queensland Country for this foray into Queensland representative trials, and Jack Gibson liked what he saw in the Tees Toyota boys. Unfortunately for Queensland Country, it made no difference, as the City team demolished the Tees Toyota side by 41 points to 12. While Brian Gardner and Mark Thomas were slashing Queensland country backline defences, New South Wales country winger Larry Corowa was slashing through Wide Bay in Wandai, scoring four tries in their 31-20 win. 
The city coach, Barry Muir, was excited about the prospect of taking on New South Wales country, who had lowered Brisbane's colours on a number of occasions in previous years. And Dave, any chance you can guess who the referee for the New South Wales country match against South Queensland was going to be? Oh gosh, let me just take a stab in the dark. Uh, Not our old mate, Mr Lancashire. (laughs) Yes, Don Lancashire. He was still refereeing the top QRL appointed matches as a member of one of the country rugby league referees associations. But whether Lancashire was refereeing or not, the South Queensland team would have to take on New South Wales country without John Lang, who was injured in the city country clash. He'd be replaced by City's reserve hooker, Gary Prickett. Ipswich's Ashley Wayne was chosen as a reserve hooker, and the only other country players selected in the South Queensland squad were Greg Platts, who would pack down with his brother Lou in the second row, with wide bays Bob Calloway on the reserves bench. The South Queensland selectors also made a number of other changes. John Callis came onto the wing to replace Mitch Brennan, who had played brilliantly in the City Country game, but he was carrying a shoulder injury. And John Salter from South was called in to replace Greg Oliphant, who was relegated to the reserves bench. Salter was on the field in the second half when the City team scored seven tries, and he earned his spot through excellent play. Unfortunately, Chris, neither Gary Prickett nor Ashley Wayne could make any inroads into New South Wales country Barry Pearson's scrum-winning capabilities. New South Wales country won the scrum count by 13-4, to but despite having no ball from the scrums, South Queensland won the match 24-18. to Early in the game, brother centre Mark Thomas scored a 50-metre try after a neat pass from John Salter. He followed that up with another long break when he drew the fullback and passed to John Callis. Unfortunately, Callis was tackled illegally before he got the ball and the try went begging, but it was an opening to the game that set up the South Queensland win. And while Queensland were playing a series of representative trials, in the north of England, Hull Kingston Rovers were disqualified from playing in the Premiership semi-finals after they played Phil Lowe when told that he was still under contract to Manly Warringah. The English Rugby League ordered them not to play the tall, damaging second rower because of his contract dispute, but Hull KR played him anyway in the quarter-final and won against Warrington. The English League then disqualified them from the competition and Warrington progressed to the semi-finals. I just think it's amazing a forfeit for technical reasons in the English First Division. Yeah, no, that's certainly not something you see every day, that's for sure. Yeah, they were a bit um, reckless playing him despite all of that hanging over them. Yeah. Anyway, a win's a win, I suppose, in their books, but uh, cost them dearly in the end, it? Didn't certainly it? did. Valleys and Souths played extra games during the next week as they lined up after Monday matches to play a Wednesday Amco Cup match. Valleys beat Illawarra and Souths beat Canterbury from New Zealand. The Amco Cup games would be the third game in four days for South Queensland representatives John Rebo, Alan Mills, Ron Milne, Greg Vivas and John Salter. That's a lot of footy. Yeah, and the Queensland selectors were in a dilemma. With the inability of South Queensland team to win any scrums with Prickett and Wayne and John Lang's injury, they had to look elsewhere for the Maroon number 12. So North's Nick Geiger, fresh off a three-week suspension, was called into the state team. After a strong showing against New South Wales country, Rod Morris was also selected after he forced his way into the team at the expense of Daryl Broman. Peter Lease withdrew with injury, as did his replacement Valley Centre, Ron Milne. He was replaced by Alan Smith from Toowoomba, with Greg McCarthy coming onto the reserves. With all that speed that Barry Muir had available to him in the Queensland team, he had a chat to Duncan Thompson about contract football that Thompson had employed with his all-conquering Toowoomba sides. If you recall our very first episode, Muir and Thompson didn't exactly see eye to eye when Barry played out there in Toowoomba. But of contract football, Muir said it was a complicated business. But to boil it down to its simplest form, it means that all players back up across the whole field and use the ball to create the space. Muir also employed Duncan Hall to assist his forwards with scrummaging and defensive tactics. While Muir and the Queensland team were preparing for their games against New South Wales, the BRL competition was wrapping up the first round of fixtures. In the final round, Brothers beat Easts to leave last year's grand finalists on the bottom of the ladder with only one win from the first round of fixtures. Redcliffe had cleared out on the top of the table after a win over Wests and Souths were in the thick of the action, so the Bunny Pierce and Wayne Bennett captain coach experiments were working okay, but the Des Morris captain coach continuation was not. Valleys had clawed their way back into the top four, where Bob Bax was also doing wonders with a young Northside, who had just beaten Winner Manly and were sitting inside the top four. 
Dennis Ward had taken to the field for Wynnum, so far with mixed results, although he had received positive playing reports each time he played. At the end of the first round of fixtures, the ladder was Redcliffe in front on 12 points, Brothers, Norths and Wests in equal second, making up the top four on eight points. Then Valleys, Wynnum and Souths just behind them on six points, and Easts behind them on two. With three teams in equal second, the BRL had to make a decision on the President's Cup opponents, and as Brothers had the best points differential, they were set to play Redcliffe in the President's Cup when their matchup rolled around in the second round of fixtures. A Brisbane representative team had to be selected to play Central Queensland while the Queensland team were preparing for their clashes with New South Wales. With Mills, Gardner, Thomas, Callis, Crea, Oliphant, Rebo, Platts, Vivas, Geiger, Rod Morris, Salter, Cock and Prickett out of the picture playing for Queensland, the Brisbane team included Alan Powell from Brothers, Mitch Brennan, Peter Lease, Paul Beecham, Chris Ryan, Ross Strudwick, Ian Tiny, Forrester Grayson, Daryl Vanderveld, Daryl Broman, John Dowling and John Barber. Tony Obst, Greg Heading, Shane Bernardin and Alan Curry were selected on the reserves and John Grant came in to replace Peter Lease when he moved to the Queensland team. Brisbane beat the Central Queensland team handsomely. Led by Ian Tiny and Mitch Brennan, they scored six tries in their 28-6 win. In the first interstate game, several Queenslanders played well, but New South Wales team had them ahead and they ran out winners 19-3 with superior positional play. Match reports speak of New South Wales being where they had to be in attack or defence while Queensland were always seen to be chasing the game. While Greg Pearce and Arthur Beetson were dominant, reports say that Oliphant played at least as well as his opposite Tom Radonikus. Rebo, Greg and Lou Platts were also equal to their opposites. Vivas and Rod Morris were equally outstanding. Steve Creer and Mark Thomas played better than their counterparts and Nick Geiger won the scrum count 16-7 against George Paponis and he also played better around the field as well. The second interstate game was a much closer affair with Queensland scoring three tries to two but going down to New South Wales by just 14-13. to Queensland had made a few changes with Peter Lease returning from injury relegating Alan Smith to the reserves and Greg McCarthy out of the side. Alan Mills had a knee injury and brother's 19-year-old attacking genius Alan Power came in to replace him. John Salter also replaced Greg Oliphant at halfback. After the interstate games were completed, the Australian team was selected for the World Cup and the first time in a long time, more than one or two Queenslanders were touted as possible selections and interest in the international game suddenly grew in Brisbane. Ah, but hold on, Chris. Before we jump into the Australian team selections, we need to catch up with the BRL happenings. The BRL was forging into the second round of fixtures, and there was much consternation in the papers surrounding the lack of form of last year's grand finalists, Easts. Wests had been floundering towards the bottom of the table, but had lifted their form to be on eight points in equal second. The Tigers, on the other hand, were still struggling to put consistent performances together, and the wins were not happening for Des Morris's boys. New South Wales country champions Monaro beat Easts in the Amco Cup and Brothers and Valleys had to face off against each other on the weekend in their Round 2 BRL fixture and then on the following Wednesday night in their Round 3 Amco Cup match. Brothers accounted for the diehards in the Premiership match getting up by 20-11 to 11, and Valleys turned the tables to move on to the next round of the Midweek Cup. A young brother's 5'8", by the name of Steve Ricketts, was a late replacement in that game. Mm, and Steve Ricketts is somebody that BRL Moments in Time certainly thank for his uh, assistance with our research. Mm -hmm. um, that Tiger situation is an interesting one. I'm sure they weren't trying to lose. In week two and three, they had big losses against Souths and Valleys, but in week four, they beat Wests. Only, and then they had narrow losses, 12-16 to Redcliffe, 18-19 to Norths, 13-15 to Wynnum, Another loss to Brothers before they get back on track with revenge wins over Souths and Valleys in round two. Another win over West and a couple of losses before a win over Wynnum. And by the end of round two, after five wins across the season, they were on 10 points. Still in last spot, but you could see that even though they were losing, they were losing fairly close. And uh, there was some kind of form happening there. We move on to the Australian team selections. Arthur Beetson was named as captain. But Beetson found out that the selectors had actually left him out of the team when it was first submitted to the ARL. The ARL would not accept the team and the selectors were told to review their selections. Beetson was then named and the ARL accepted the side. 
When he found out he had originally been left out of the side, Beeson withdrew from the team. On a brighter note, Queensland players Greg Vivers, Rod Morris, Steve Creer, Nick Geiger and Mark Thomas were selected to represent Australia and all five were selected to play the first match against New Zealand South Island. The five Queenslanders all toured through New Zealand in the preliminary matches before all players returned to their clubs for a couple of weeks. When the Australian squad was then finally selected for the remaining games, only Geiger, Thomas and Vivers were selected. But all three Queensland players remained in the team for each game of the series until the final of the World Cup when Russell Gartner was preferred to Mark Thomas. I couldn't find further reference to Jim Mills in the newspapers of the day, but he was never selected in the test team for Great Britain. So, like Phil Lowe, he may not have toured at all. In the end, Australia won that World Cup with a 13-12 win over Great Britain in the final. In week 11 of the BRL, Redcliffe and Brothers played a hotly contested President's Cup match where Redcliffe stayed in complete control throughout. Even though Redcliffe won 33-2, Brothers were competing and the Redcliffe players knew they'd been in a contest. Referee Ian Smith gave team captains Bob Cock and Ian Pearce a warning that if their hookers did not stop infringing, they would be immediately sent from the field. After 22 minutes of the second half, they infringed again and were both immediately sent from the field. <laughs> there were 59 stoppages throughout the game, with Brothers awarded 20 penalties to 10. Despite Brothers' competitive nature, they made error upon error, and Mark Thomas was just throwing the ball without his inside men looking to create space for him. Jack Reardon commented that he felt sorry for Thomas, who was throwing the ball in such bad situations and expected to perform miracles, and that it made it really easy for Redcliffe to shut him down. In the second round, Easts found some semblance of form, but only a little. As we mentioned, they beat Souths, Valleys, Wests and Winnemanley to finish the round with a total of 10 points after five wins for the season. By the time the whole competition was at the end of round two, Redcliffe were clear on top of the table on 20 points. Norths and Wests were running equal second on 18, with Brothers, Valleys and Wynnum on equal fourth. Souths and Easts remained at the bottom of the table, each team with only 10 points. But just a week later, after the first week of round three fixtures, Redcliffe had skipped out to 22 points in first place, Norths and Wests remained equal second on 18, then Wynnum is clear fourth on 14. But right behind them, just one win away were the other four teams, Easts, Brothers, Valleys and Souths all on 12 points just one win out of the semi-finals and a full six rounds to be played. It's kind of amazing there, Dave. We've got four teams, just two points out of the semi-finals, and the last place team was one of those four teams. So it's a pretty close competition. Very crowded table. Yeah. Yeah. In the second week of round three, East scored a late try to Steve Stacey to beat South by one point, 14 to 13, after a Greg Holborn conversion from the sideline. It was the fourth time in the past four games at Lang Park that the game was a cliffhanger. Wynnum had beaten Redcliffe 17-16 on the Saturday of the same weekend of the East and Souths game after Trevor Woods kicked a penalty goal in the last moments. Redcliffe beat West in a tight affair with a late try in the 13-9 win the previous week and the week before that, West kicked a last-minute penalty goal to Wayne Stewart to beat Valleys 12-11. The closeness on the field was reflected on the ladder as well, as East began to climb out of the cellar. Redcliffe remained on top with 22, West had moved to 20, North stayed on 18, Wynnum on 16, and Brothers and East had moved up on 14 with Valleys and Souths still on 12. The 1977 competition had proved one thing, and that was that every team was capable of beating every other team. Yeah, that's a great uh, recipe for a good season. But as the final round of fixtures was hotting up, the Amco Cup had moved into the quarterfinals as well, and Valleys had to face Artie Beetson's Eastern Suburbs team from Sydney. With the likes of Beetson, Harris, Fairfax, Schubert and Bob Fulton in the team, Valleys were up against it, and it showed in the final scoreline of 35 points to 2. Easts would make their way through to the Amco Cup Grand Final, but Sydney's Western Suburbs Magpies beat the Roosters and eventually won the Cup narrowly by 6 points to 5. And in week 18, every team was in with a chance of making the semi-finals, but Valleys and Souths had to win or their chances would be gone. Valleys did win 24-14 over winner Manly. Unfortunately, though, for the Magpies, they had one too many close losses and were eliminated from semi-final contention after a 10-19 loss to Norths. In that game, both Nick Geiger and Arnold Eusen were removed from the hooking spot by their captains after the referee, Stan Scamp again, 
warned them that they'd been penalised enough for scrum infringements and if they continued, they'd be sent off. I guess the two captains realised that Stan Scamp wasn't just posturing. He was definitely going to send them off, so he made them both move out of the hooking spot. In other games, East convincingly beat West by 29-14 at Langlands Park and Brothers and Redcliffe played out a tight match at Lang Park. Brothers centre Mark Thomas made a long break downfield when he was tackled high by Tony Obst. Thomas was left lying on the ground, eventually carried off by his teammates. Tony Obst was sent off and received a three-week suspension from the judiciary and Brothers won the game 14-8. It meant that East and Brothers were still level fourth spot just behind Norths with Wynnum one win behind and Valleys two wins behind that with just three weeks to play. After week 19, Wynnum had beaten Souths to move closer to the top four. Easts lost to Redcliffe, leaving Redcliffe clear in first and Easts level on fifth with Wynnum just one win out of the top four. Brothers beat Wests by a point with Ian Douth proving how important a reliable goal kicker is. His team scored just one try to Wests two, but Douth's kicking kept Brothers in front. John Rhodes would have loved to have Douth in Royal Blue in 1977 as a story surfaced in the paper where Valleys had scored more tries than any other team but didn't have a recognised goal kicker. Yeah, but Valleys did kick goals sometimes. We spoke about John Rebo kicking a swag in Week 1 and now Valleys rattled up a score against third place Norths winning 42-15 with Ross Strudwick kicking seven goals. Redcliffe, though, were marching towards the minor premier position. Reardon tells the story that before a game the first time coach... Captain Ian Pearce was psyching his charges up for the game and he went around the room pointing at each player saying, tackle, the next player, tackle, the next player, tackle, the next player, tackle, the next player, tackle. And then he came to Alan Noonan and Noonan interrupted him and said, if all those blokes are doing all the tackling, I guess it's up to me to score the tries. (laughs) Although Alan Noonan wasn't responsible for scoring any of their four tries, Redcliffe put an end to Valley's semi-final hopes in week 20 with a four tries to three, 28-15 win. But despite Valleys bowing out of semi-final calculations, Wests, East and Brothers also won to make the finals picture less clear than before. At the end of week 20, Valleys and South had been removed from calculations, but with Redcliffe on top with 28, West second with 24 and Brothers third on 22, Norths were losing badly week after week and dropping out of the four fast with only 20 points equal to Easts. In the East-Norths game, Easts were in terrific attacking form and Greg Holborn scored a try off the back of some fleet-footed elusiveness. After he scored, Des Morris and Wayne Woods lay on the ground unconscious. With all eyes on the quick-stepping Holborn, no one had seen what happened to Morris or Woods. But the touch judge was on quickly to report and Stan Scamp sent off Gary Seaton and cautioned Shane Bernarden. Both Morris and Woods were taken from the field, and after Roger Kuhn had been replaced earlier in the second half, only one more replacement was allowed, and East were playing with 12 men. There was much confusion over who had been replaced when Morris tried to return to the field. Wynnum Manley were just behind East's and North's on 18, and Wynnum were playing East in that final week of the season. With a win they could force a three-way playoff for fourth place if Brothers were to beat Norths to continue their losing run. There was speculation all week about the permutations of this team or that team winning. After the weekend's footy was over, the playoff was necessary after all, but not because Wynnum Manly beat Easts. The playoff was forced when Easts beat Wynnum to go into onto 22 points and equal third spot with Brothers. Then Norths beat Brothers convincingly to join them, them and Easts on 22 points. In a complete turnaround of form, the Devils had forced a playoff with either Easts and or Brothers. With three teams tied for third place, the usual method of splitting teams in the final series was the team with the better for and against differential places higher on the ladder. Easts had the higher differential, so they would take third place. That meant Brothers and Norths were in equal fourth place and had to play off to determine which team plays the minor semi-final against Easts. It was really bizarre because uh, the papers all week talked about what might happen if Wynnum beat Easts and Brothers beat Norths, as was expected. And then there would be a three-way playoff for fourth between Norths, Easts and Wynnum Manly. But instead, Norths beat Brothers, which nobody ever considered. And Easts won against Wynnum to put East, Norths and Brothers now equal in third spot. Something the papers may have considered, but they certainly didn't spend a lot of time talking about it. So South beat Redcliffe in that final round of the season. The Dolphins remain minor premiers 
and Souths remained wooden spooners. Valleys also beat second place Wests and Valleys remained second last and Wests remained in second place. It was also noted in the uh, paper in that week that Valleys had, although they were running second last, had scored more tries than any other team in the 1977 BRL competition. And after 19 weeks of competition, Valleys had scored 66 tries, while closest to that number were Norths with 63 and West with 62. Ian Douth had so far kicked 75 goals, while Ian Pearce had kicked 67, and Tom Gologoli and Bruce Warwick each kicked 66. Valley's best was John Rebo with 41, and he was kicking so well that he was replaced by Ross Strudwick. If we took the seven goals that Rebo kicked in Week 1 and the seven goals that Strudwick kicked in Week 19, their overall points tally really looks pretty dismal. So Valley's had been beaten by a number of teams by narrow margins, and now wallowed four points out of the top four, due in part to the fact that John Rebo and Ross Strudwick were not top-flight goal kickers. Some would say that their defence had probably contributed to that status, and they shouldn't have left, and they shouldn't have let other teams score as many tries. And that's 100% true. But Valleys were the second-best defensive side in the competition. They conceded only 26 more points than the minor premiers Redcliffe, and 60 points less than the third-best defensive team Easts. So to top that off, Valleys were the third top attacking side, just three points behind West in second place. I know there'll be detractors out there who point to the fact that I'm a Valleys fan bringing this up, but <laughs> the newspapers brought up the Valleys story, and uh, with the diehards finishing in a second-last spot, I think it's important to note how close the competition was. Last beat first, and second-last beat second in the final round of the season, mm. and three teams finished equal third, just four points ahead of the second-last team. And that team finished second last, had the second best defensive record in the league and had scored more tries than anyone else. Wow. So it was a close competition and I guess that's what we're trying to celebrate. We're trying to celebrate how good the BRL was. Mm. Certainly as a kid, you know, what that I remember was that the BRL was fantastic. And uh, this particular season is certainly one that points exactly to how fantastic it was. Mm. Continuing with the closeness of the competition, if we look at Souths for and against, each of their losses across the whole season averaged out to be a five-point loss, whereas Redcliffe, on top of the table, had their games averaged out to be an average of six-point winning across the whole season. So Souths were wooden spooners, losing games since week 12 by an average of just five points and winning their last game of the season against the minor premiers. Hmm. Valleys finished second last and won their last game against the second-place Wests. East had been last all the way up until week 15 and finished the season in third spot. If teams could compete like that across the whole season and always be in contention to win a game, the competition was healthy, and in 1977, the competition was definitely healthy. It finished off with Redcliffe first on 28, West on 24, East Brothers and Norths on 22, Valleys and Wynnum on 18, and Souths on 14. And that closeness of the, of the competition was going to be underlined throughout the semi-final series as teams from the lower half of the draw won games to progress in the finals campaign. Brothers were expected to win the playoff against Norths, but after Norths beat Brothers 26-8 in the final game of the season, they would be feeling confident of their chances in the fourth place playoff. And Brothers would also feel confident after playing better football than that last week's game for a majority of the season. Norths had been punching above their weight all season. Somebody forgot to tell Bob Bax and his team that they were not supposed to win because in the playoff for fourth place, Norths beat Brothers 23-10 to prove the Week 21 game was not a fluke and to ensure that Bob Bax's record of now 16 years as an A-grade coach and never have his teams miss out on the semi-finals was going to be kept intact. <laughs> and the minor semi-final between East and Norths was well contested. East had the game in some form of control, but Norths were always close enough to snatch it away. With East leading by just five points, Norths almost equaled the scores through fullback Peter Dutton. East countered with Lindenberg and Wayne Woods sending Steve Farquhar away, and he passed to the speedy John Callis, who finished off the raid. And after the Holborn conversion, East now had a 10-point lead, which they held on to for the last two minutes of the game. In third grade, Valleys beat Winner Manley 12-8, and in reserve grade, Winham reversed that result, beating Valleys 22-7. In the major semi-final, defence was the name of the game. A Steve Williams field goal that was kicked about 15 minutes into the second half was the difference in a trialless match where both goal kickers converted two penalties each. 
Reckless 5'8 Williams snatched the match from West with a field goal, making it 5-4 to the Dolphins. So West were definitely in that game. It was pretty close. In the lower grade games, there was only one try in the result of both matches. In reserve grade, East beat South 11-6, and in third grade, West beat East 21-16. In the preliminary final, East and West played a tight affair. East's teenage wing sensation Steve Stacey had been proving unstoppable. His splash into top grade rugby league was very much like Mitch Brennan's for Souths. Each game he played was spiced with something sensational. In the 1977 preliminary final against Wests, just a couple of minutes before half-time, Stacey raced 55 metres to score a try, leaving Panthers defenders trailing behind. Greg Holborn added to the Stacey try with three goals to give Easts a lead that they held on to for the remainder of the game. With just a minute left to play, West's Bob Downey scored in the corner to bring West's within range and to make those final seconds frantic. But East's held on and masterful displays from the Tigers pack gave their backs more opportunities to attack and thus pin West's in their own half for longer periods. While there were a number of players who performed well, West's most dangerous attacking weapon was Greg Slippery McCarthy, whose speed often had him in a gap or half gap, but East's Wayne Lindenberg, probably the only player on the field fast enough to catch him, did just that, any time he looked like getting away. Lock forwards Norm Carr and Alan Curry were both outstanding in a tightly contested match. In reserve grade, Souths beat Winner Manley convincingly to book themselves another shot at Easts, and in third grade, Easts booked themselves a rematch with Wests after beating Valleys. So grand final day was a day of excitement for Tigers fans. They had all three sides were represented. But West had secured the third grade premiership by 22 to 14. But East turned the tables and won the reserve grade game by 23-16 against Souths. And in the A grade match, Redcliffe were hot favourites. But East coached by Des Morris and Morris was playing in this game. His experience and presence on the field was a calming influence for those Tigers, despite the fact that they had squeezed into the semi-finals. They were dead last for the first 15 weeks of the season and only climbed off the bottom of the table with five weeks remaining. That wasn't a solid foundation to win a grand final, but the Tigers didn't care how they got there, just that they were there. Forrester Grayson crashed over for the first try of the match to Redcliffe. And uh, now this is the front row of Bullo making good ground, spreading tacklers everywhere, particularly Abbott who went flying back from him, now to Oliphant. And there's Grayson racing through, look at Grayson, crashing through, Grayson's over for the first try of the match, and Redcliffe leads 3-2, a great try. East posted another couple of tries in the first half to lead 12-7 at the break. And soon after half-time though, Wayne Lindenberg led Easts on an attacking raid to Redcliffe's quarter line, when he raced into dummy half, looked left and right, dummied and took off for the try line, weaving away from fullback Tony Obst. That's Lindenberg, and look at the gap. Lindenberg straight through. He's got Obst to beat. Can he, Obst can't get near him. Lindenberg races away for the third try for East. What a start to the second half. East to leading 15-7. And scoring a try to put East ahead 15-7. In true Redcliffe fashion, they edged closer and closer and gave themselves a chance with penalty goals to bring the scores to 13-17 which is where they finished. Both teams had the players to produce exciting attacking play and Jack Redden mentioned that it was one of the most open grand finals in recent memory. But the defence of both sides continually snuffed out the beautiful attacking raids that we saw developing throughout the game. Well, that's our wrap of the 1977 season. Congratulations to Des Morris and the East Tigers going one better than in 1976. The Tigers were really developing into a powerhouse if they weren't already there. That's the final year of our first season of the podcast. Next week, we'll discuss the players of the 1977 season, and the week after that, we will have a special episode to begin placing players into our BRL Moments in Time Hall of Fame. Thanks very much, Dave, for all of your help with this episode. Yeah, no worries again, Chris. If you enjoyed the podcast, please jump onto the platform that you listen to and give us a rating and a review so that others can find us too. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at PRL Moments in Time, you can contact us via our website or via our social media pages. Just search for PRL Moments in Time on Facebook and on Instagram or on our website and get in contact with us there. This podcast was developed and produced on the lands of the Yagara, Yugara and Yagarapal people of the Ipswich region and we acknowledge and pay respect to their traditional custodians. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs> Mighty tigers, giants in the golden black.